Good morning, church. So last week, uh, many of you will remember about 30, I think it was like 37 minutes into my sermon, I abruptly stopped because I realized I probably had 40 more minutes to go. And so we pushed the pause button, and as Don asked me this morning, am I going to make it through more than one verse today? The answer is I hope so. We'll see. No, 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 that's, that's a joke. We will definitely get through more than one verse this morning. But as we begin, we're going to hop back into John 3, 31 to 36. That's where we're going to begin. And just as a brief overview of last week, we stepped into what is here, I think, an author's note. The author is now summarizing for us all of the things that he has written in the prior passages. So we have a, a good summary here of, of what John has been pointing to throughout um, the early chapters of this book. And we began last week with verse 31, and the first point being that he who comes from above is superior to all else because of where he comes from. Where he comes from is a reason and a point in and of itself of his superiority. And the one from above, obviously, is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the one who the author is constantly pointing to. So this morning, let's hop back into this, and we're going to get going. So let's read John 3, 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather as a people, as a congregation, Lord, to worship you through our reading of scripture, through our prayers, through our singing, and through the preaching and teaching of your word, Lord. So this morning, may our worship be pleasing to you. May it be a pleasing aroma that rises to you, Father. May our worship be filled with spirit and truth. May you point us to yourself, point us to your Son. May our eyes be fixed upon him as John had intended throughout this gospel. So Lord, be with us this morning. Lead us, guide us in this teaching. Go before us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so quick, quick review of the context here. As I said a minute ago, we've got into this. The end of chapter 3 is an author's note. He is summarizing what has happened before that, right? So what are these things that he's summarizing? Well, he's summarizing um, the very beginning of the book of John where he, he lays out this, this beautiful poem of Jesus' divinity who uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He, he's summarizing uh, this, this divinity that we see in our Lord and Savior. He's summarizing 
the work of John the Baptist, laying the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah. He's summarizing the call of these disciples. And we'll get into some of these words that the disciples say in their very early, early days and hours of coming into contact with Christ. John is, is summarizing the words of Nicodemus. The words of Nicodemus. How can, how can someone be born again? How can somebody go back into a mother's womb a second time? He's summarizing John 3.16, the monologue. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And he's summarizing these great words of John the Baptist. That he must increase, but I must decrease. These are all the thing, all the things that Jesus or that John is writing about here. And so last week we discussed he who comes from above is above all. The superiority of Jesus coming from outside, coming from elsewhere, coming from heaven, as John writes here later in the verse. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is superior because of where he comes from. And today, as we hop right into this text. We're going to start with our first point, or if you want to be real technical, the second point from last week. And the second point from last week is this, verse 32. Jesus is superior by the very nature of who he is. Throughout this text, John is demonstrating the superiority of our Lord and Savior. Jesus is superior because of where he comes from. Jesus is superior by the very nature of who he is. And here's what John writes. 32, he bears witness. He, Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who has been referred to throughout the whole first three chapters, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. The question has to be asked, what has he seen and heard? We're three chapters into this book. Jesus' ministry is just taking off. What has he seen and heard that Jesus testifies to himself? And I think the answer is twofold. I think the answer is twofold. One is an, an implication. One is implied. The other is very specific. And so what are these two things? The place from which he came from, he testifies to. So remember, he comes from above. He comes from heaven. The place from which he comes is the triune community, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Remember, last week, we, we read the words from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? Christmas in July. We, we talk about, I, I'm not entirely sure why Christmas in July is a thing, but it is. I know I just saw an Instagram post about it this morning, a Christmas tree in a coffee shop. I don't, I don't quite know. But it's a perfect opportunity right here and right now to remind ourselves again of these great words. And I'm going to start in verse 2 to discuss where or what this one from above testifies to. What he has seen and heard. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God with us. Or 
right? That's, that's what that word means. Emmanuel, God has come to dwell with man. God has come to dwell with man. And so let's talk a little bit about this Trinitarian community from which he comes. Because unlike us, there is a very definitive starting point to your life in the womb. There is a very definitive starting point to you and I. But that is not true of our Savior. He is eternal. He comes from elsewhere, and he comes from a place in which, in which time does not even exist. There is, there is no time. He's eternal. There is no beginning point to him. And yet he comes into us and breaks into time and space, veiled in flesh. And so, I'm not going to lie to you, this morning, having the, uh, the thought of preaching on points of the Trinity is uh, daunting. To say the least, I'm sure Jeff will attest. So I'm relying a bit here on, on Louis Burkhoff, who's very helpful. And there's five things I want to talk about in regards to the community from which he comes. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And the first of which is the last one Louis Burkhoff puts, but it's the first one I think we need to start with. Is that the Trinity, the triune community, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a complete and utter mystery. It is incomprehensible. Our language that we have is so finite and limited that we can't even with proper language begin to explain this triune community. It's a mystery. So if you leave here more confused because of my teaching, I apologize for that. And here we are trying to explain it. But it is a mystery. His community, who he is, three and yet one one and yet three it goes beyond the extent of language and comprehension because we are limited to a very specific place. We are limited to a very specific time and yet he is outside of those bounds completely. And so, where does this one from above come from? What has he seen and what has he testified to? In a very general implication kind of sense we have, he comes from this one indivisible being, this one indivisible essence. Think long time ago, over a year ago, when we had began working through the abstract of principles and we had begun to work through the triune nature of God and we had discussed this unknowable essence that is God. You look around, we're all human beings. We have the same nature. Biologically, we have the same nature. Many of you have dogs at home. They have the same essence, the same nature. A dog is a dog is a dog is a dog. Trees have the same essence. We know a tree, we see it, that's a tree. We see a dog, that's a dog. We see a human, that's a human. The essence that is shared between those individual animals, if you want to call them that, or beings, are the same. And we know them. Because we have lived around them. We see them. We physically interact. And the Godhead bears an essence that is unique, uh, unique unto himself. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, comes from, bears the same indivisible essence. This nature that belongs solely and strictly to God. And we don't know it. We don't know it. It is a mystery. 
And this is where he comes from. This is what he attests to, the reality of this community. As I already had said a bunch of times, this trinity is broken into three, it is three persons, not broken, that's the wrong word, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And their essence is undivided. They are each equally and fully, wholly, eternally God. None is more God than the other God. There is none lesser and none greater in their nature. There is none more or less in their godness. They are all equally of the same essence, undivided in their godness. They are all equally God. And this is where we kind of get into the specifics. Remember I said I think John is referring to two things here. A general implication and a specific one in which he has, Jesus has testifying to what he has seen and heard. And here we get into this. The operation of the three persons of the Trinity are marked by a definite order. Each member of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, is marked by tasks and order. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The economic trinity or the economy of the trinity. The tasks that they carry out. This is where the one who comes from above comes from. This perfect community in which they need, he needs none of us. Everything God needs resides in and of himself. Within that community is perfection. And in his, yeah, in his graciousness, all of creation pours out from himself. In his goodness, everything you see around you, everything you know and love to be good has flowed out of who he is. Creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing. We are all sub-creators. We create with things that have been given to us. But God, in his all-being, the attributes that he possesses, creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so we come to the specifics of what I believe Jesus or John is referring to. And so what is it that Jesus has seen and heard? This community that he comes from, but also I think the specific task at hand that was given to him. So recall the economics, or the economic trinity, the economy of the trinity, the tasks that they each perform. There is a very specific mission that Jesus Christ has to do, had to do. Recall my illustration of Gandalf a few weeks back. He broke in from somewhere else to perform a very specific task in aiding the ending and destruction of the ring. And so it is that Jesus breaks in from outside with a very specific task to end sin and death. We call this, in fancy theological jargon, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. What is a covenant? We've talked about this before in many ways, in many places. But a covenant, an agreement between two parties, 
that something must be accomplished, and for that accomplishment, there is a reward, or for failing to perform that task, there is a punishment. Think of the covenant of works that was made with Israel. Go to Deuteronomy 28, 29, and you can read all about the punishments for failing to obey the law. There are very specific pieces to these covenants. One must perform this, and a blessing is given. One fails to perform this, and there is punishment. They span, these, these covenants flow throughout the texts of Scripture. And there is one that has come. There is one between the Father and the Son, a covenant, a covenant of redemption. The task at hand is to break into this world as a baby, as an infant, as a child, to come and to save and to redeem those who are wandering in darkness. The covenant of redemption. I think we read about this. I think we read this in Philippians. Let's look at Philippians really fast. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But these beautiful words of this covenant of redemption. You might not hear the language or the term covenant used, but it's there. Just as you don't see the word trinity throughout the scripture, but it's there. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Right? Hark the herald angels sing, God with us. And being found in human form. What did Jesus do? Paul writes, he humbled himself. He condescended. He said, I have a task that I must take, and it requires me to take on flesh to condescend, lower myself into my creation so that I might redeem these people. Paul is pulling this out, this covenant of redemption and being found in human form. He humbled himself, the one from above, condescended, the one from above, John's language, the one from heaven who is above all. Paul is picking this up. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who is testifying to what he knows to be true, condescended from this place in which he had no need to ever leave. In which he resided in eternal perfect community. Everything he ever could have wanted was there within God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Within himself in the Trinity. performed this covenant of redemption, humbled himself. Think of this in relation to you and your sinfulness and your sin nature and what you once were. That this God, God the Son, God himself, broke into his creation and humbled himself being in a little baby. The most weak, mild, Incredibly fragile state. This is how God broke into, uh, into creation. Why? Because of death. 
to take on death, to die for us on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, right? Think of this covenant. What did I say? A covenant has a task to perform and a blessing for completion. Jesus breaks in, completes his task. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who suffers and dies, receives glory at the end of Isaiah 53. Jesus, Paul is pulling these themes out, so we must see them too. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The covenant of redemption. So what does Jesus come and bear witness to? He comes and bears witness to himself. He comes and bears witness that he comes from God the Father. God that the people of Israel would know. He comes from that place, from him. And he bears witness to this covenant of redemption that has been promised for ages past. Think all the way back to Abraham. Think all the way back even farther to Genesis 3 and what God says to Mary about the, 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 the son, the seed crushing the head of the serpent. The promises have always been there. And Jesus is coming to bear witness to the fact that he is that. He is testified to what he sees and he has heard. Things he knows from time unbeknownst. And yet, no one receives his testimony. John 1 records this for us. John 3, John is re repeating what he has already said. God breaks into creation and yet nobody believes him. Imagine going on a vacation, right? You go somewhere, you do something awesome, you go fishing, you catch this gigantic shark out in the ocean on your trip, and you come back like, hey guys, I caught this giant shark out on the ocean. I was out, I was out in the Gulf of Mexico, it was beautiful, sharks everywhere. We caught one, we brought it home, we cooked it, it was delicious, had it for dinner. You come back, tell everyone this. I don't believe you. No, there's no way. No way, I don't believe it. Right? I'm sure many of you might have those stories of something wild and crazy that has happened on a vacation you've gone on. You come back and tell everybody, you don't have photo proof. You don't have, have anything to document this. You're like, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe you one bit. That's in a much lesser form what is happening here. God the Son, God himself breaks in and all of the religious authorities who should know these promises... Nah, I don't believe it. How can someone be born again? What are you talking about? How can I go back into my mom's womb? She's like 80 years old. She's dead now. How does that even make sense? I don't believe you. That's what Jesus encounters throughout his life. That's exactly what happens to him. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, God himself takes on flesh, breaks in to illuminate all of these promises that were made. Not just to illuminate, but to personify to be them to fulfill them nah i don't believe that you're a rabble rouser you're a false prophet 
You need to die because of that. That's what he encounters. That's what our Lord and Savior receives upon his arrival. Right? We talked about the passages from Isaiah in which the author writes about the deafness and the blindness of the people. He even tells Isaiah, go and tell these people, you will be deaf and blind. You won't see. You won't hear, even though he's standing right in front of you. That's what John is pulling out for us. As I said several weeks ago, that is what John is pulling out for us. This deafness and this blindness to the fact that the Son of Man, to use Daniel's language, to use Jesus' language of himself, the Son of Man, the eternal judge of the world, is standing right there. And he testifies, I am the one, right? Like the, 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 the Moses example that he uses in John 3. I am the one who is going to be raised up on the pole. Just like this bronze serpent that Moses made, look to it and you will see and you will be alive again. So I'm that, I'm that. I'm the son of man. I will be raised up. Literally, on the pole. And literally, in his resurrection. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. What he knows of himself and this covenant that has been eternally laid out to redeem you and me and sinners all over this world. He bears witness to this and yet no one receives his testimony. Gandalf Stormcrow, the one who just brings trouble. That's how Jesus was received. The one who just brings trouble. And he was put to death for it. But John doesn't stop there. Point three, or point two, depending on how you're connecting last week and this week. It's up to you. Jesus is superior because of what he did and what he is still doing. So Jesus is superior because of where he comes from. He is superior because of the very nature of whom he is. Jesus is superior also because of what he does. Because of what he accomplishes. So here we have verses 33 and 34. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. Remember, this is a, he, he's, it's like a paradox, right? We have these people who do not receive his testimony. This large amount of people who just scoff and deny and refuse. But, John says, but whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, right? A seal, something that you stamp to guarantee authenticity. Your favorite athlete, you have a signed jersey, you want to know that that is authentic. And so there is a seal placed on a little certificate that you get to certify its authenticity. That's what this seal is talking about. So whoever receives the testimony of this one from above, whoever receives this testimony from the Son of Man, he sets his seal. He affirms this. What does he affirm? That God is true. He affirms that God is true. We didn't spend uh, any time talking about the attributes of God when we kind of walked through a very brisk walkthrough of the Trinity. We didn't discuss his attributes. But one of them that he possesses, well, he, he, 
the incommunicable attributes that he shares with nobody, that he alone can possess. And those communicable attributes that he does share, one of those attributes is his veracity. His veracity, to use again another theological term. This word veracity reveals something of God's nature, of who he is. It's a legal term. At least I think that's what it is. A legal term. And there's three senses in which this word veracity is applied to the Godhead. One is the metaphysical sense of veracity. His truthfulness. He is all that he as God should be. God is exactly as he should be. Therefore, all other little g gods are deficient. Our God is, as scripture reveals him to be, all that he should be. He is the only God. And by default, everything else is an idol. The logical sense of this term veracity, that he knows things, all things, exactly as they are. There is nothing he doesn't know. He knows all things. He knows exactly what will happen, when it will happen, because before time began, he ordained it to be such. He knows all things. And even beyond the sense of history, he knows all things. But our, our point for today, what we need to focus on here is this ethical sense of his veracity. That he reveals himself as he really is. So that his revelation, his revelation is absolutely reliable. Think of Psalm 19. Think of Romans. That God speaks and reveals himself through nature. Through what he has created. But that is only a very general revelation. That is a revelation which doesn't quite reveal him to his full ex extent. But by his spirit, he has given us revelation that is fully reliable and reveals exactly who he is and what he has done. And that comes through the words of his scripture. And so, how do those who receive his testimony affirm, stamp, authenticate his truth? Or authenticate his veracity, to use the term we've been using. Well, I love these passages. I know I read them last week. But as Jesus begins his ministry, we have these these words from these men who have encountered him that just strike to the very cord of who he is. Again, John. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This man who did receive the testimony... This man who did not scoff. This man who did understand what was happening. He says, behold, here comes the Lamb of God. He testifies to this truth. 
he proclaims this truth. He authenticates, behold, here comes the Lamb of God. And he says later in that passage, I have seen, remember we're talking about people who have received this testimony and have affirmed it. John, I have seen and have borne witness to what? This is the Son of God. I affirm this, John says. He can't help but to be impacted by the truth and he can't help but to affirm this reality. Later in chapter 1, I know I read these yesterday, but you're going to have to hear them again because they're beautiful. Who knows how long after Andrew encounters Jesus. I mean, who knows? It could be minutes. It could be just a little while. But here's what he says. He first found his own brother Simon. Andrew runs to find his brother because he has to tell him the news. He has to tell him what he has seen. He has to bear witness to the truth. To what God has shown him. He has to go. So he goes to find his brother and what does he say? We have found the Messiah. We have found him. They can't help but to bear witness to what they have seen. Then we have this passage again later. Philip, Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, what did Philip say? He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Highlighting these promises that they knew. These, these promises from the Old Testament texts were not lost upon them. We have these random men encountering Jesus, running off to tell other people, we found the one who was promised. They bear witness to what they have seen. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's great response, Nazareth? What kind of trash comes out of Nazareth? What are you talking about? So Nathaniel has to go and see. They have a little conversation. And here's what Nathaniel's very next statement is after this conversation. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see, you see, what John is highlighting in his author's note is that those who have received his testimony can't help but affirm the truthfulness of God's promise. That the covenant of redemption would come to fruition in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The son of man, the second person of the trinity, breaking in from outside into this world to save sinners. And to bring this a little closer to home, consider yourself. Consider yourself. The very reason you are sitting in this building right now is because you have been impacted and you testify to the truth of the second person of the Trinity and the work that he has done on your behalf. That's why you're here. You can't help but affirm the testimony that God is true. And so we gather, and so we fellowship, and so we worship, and so we evangelize. 
And so we are an embassy, an outpost, a local body representing a kingdom that is somewhere else because we have been so impacted by the truthfulness, capital T, the personified truth, Jesus, that you can't help but to testify to that. Your lives are demonstrations of that. The greatest miracle that can ever be performed is not some healing of the sick, is not some miraculous who knows what million dollars in your bank account. No, it's the fact that death can be, can be reversed. It is the fact that out of a rock can grow a plant. It is that out of life comes death. Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. That is a representation of the greatest miracle that can ever happen. And your lives, if impacted by Christ, speak, authenticate, demonstrate, reveal that truth. Reveal that veracity that God is true. For he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. Jesus comes not proclaiming, this is going to sound weird, not proclaiming what he wants, but he does come proclaiming what he wants because he is perfectly obedient to God the Father. He comes proclaiming the words of God. And his life, his ministry, his 33 years are empowered by the third person of the Trinity. You see, all three members of the Godhead are active in your salvation. You see, all three members of the Trinity are at work in the life of Christ, in his obedience and in his empowerment. He is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. In one incomprehensible, ununderstandable way. I was reading a book the other day, uh, yesterday, and he was talking about Moses and the burning bush, how when Moses encountered the bush, the think about this, the leaves were still green. It's on fire. You've all sat around a fire. David can tell you the damage a fire does. The colors of things change very quickly. If a tree is on fire, its leaves don't stay alive. Its leaves Dry, brittle, turn brown, crumble, burn, destroy. This tree was still green. The branches were still growing. And yet there was a fire consuming it. And in an odd way, the person of Christ is likewise. We have God and man, none consuming the other. Both perfectly within himself as he breaks a new creation. This is our Savior who is completely and wholly obedient to the Father and completely and fully empowered by the Spirit to do his work. And the Spirit now goes before him softening the darkness. And as Zach said this morning in our Sunday school class, as the gospel is proclaimed throughout the New Testament, there is always a decision that must be made. It is never a neutral statement. There is always an offer 
there is always a decision that must be made. And John is no different. Our last point. What you make of the Lord of the universe is the most important thought you will ever have in your life. What you make of this one who has broken in from heaven, who has redeemed sinners, who has conquered sin and death, who have been, has been raised up to die and resurrect again, what you make of him is the most important thought you will ever have. Not what job you take, not what person you marry, not how many kids you have, not what home you buy, not what state you reside in, but who is this Jesus? And here's how John concludes this chapter. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Why did I couple those two together? It might seem more logical to put 35 up with 34. But I think elsewhere. I think otherwise. Because we must understand that this Jesus... That this Jesus, all things have been given to him. You have been given to him. This creation has been given to him. Everything you taste and, and touch and see and hear and smell, they're his. Everything you cannot see, the spiritual realms, the unseen forces that Ephesians talks about and Paul talks about, they're his. The solar system. Elias is obsessed with space right now. He can tell you just like anything you want to know about the order of the planets, their temperature, their size, what's the biggest, what's the smallest, all of it. I mean, he knows more than I ever have and ever care to know about the solar system. He's four years old. It's his. Not Elias's. It's Jesus. It's Christ's. It's his. It's his. The expansive universe is his. Recall the Philippians passage that I read. Recall the conclusion to that beautiful poem that Paul writes. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This Jesus. Everything is his. His name, he is superior to all of it. And not just the superiority, but listen to how Paul continues that I've read already. His name is superior so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does Paul mean by under the earth? I think he means those who have chosen to reject him. Every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Whether it's willingly or unwillingly, all are going to recognize the godness, the superiority of the Son of Man. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Paul concludes, I'm sorry, as John concludes, there is a decision 
that must be made. There is a decision that must be made. Because whoever believes in the Son, whoever bows and confesses in obedience because the Spirit, because they have such uh, experienced this Christ, has eternal life, will reside in a kingdom with this triune God for all of eternity as heaven will one day break back in. It will one day break back in and this creation will be rolled up like a scroll and burned and what will remain is the kingdom and eternal torment. So not to be fire and brimstone, but you cannot avoid. You cannot avoid the reality that a decision must be made. Those who confess, those who experience, those who testify and affirm to the personified truth, the logos, the personified word of God that John uses earlier, will have eternal life. But whoever does not obey, does not believe, to use another word, whoever does not obey this son, we're all sitting here right now in some form or fashion experiencing the son. And this experience of the son is going to lead to one of two things, glory or death. Whoever does not believe, does not obey, the Son shall not see life. This kingdom that will break in, that we read in Revelation 20, 21, you will not see it. There will be no community with the triune God. There will be no community with those who do affirm the truth of the Son. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Not complete and utter destruction in which you no longer exist, but eternal wrath of God remaining. The Son of Man, whom John cannot but help point to. The one who, as I've said three weeks in a row, was lifted up on the pole, right? Moses in the wilderness, the serpents because of punishment, biting, poisoning, killing Israelites. Says to Moses, God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent, hang it up so that those who are going to die because they've been bitten can look and see. They shall live because they see this bronze serpent lifted up. That's Christ. That's you who have been bitten and shall surely die, you have no choice. There is only one thing that is a definite in this life, and that is our death. We will die. But the God-man, the second son, in obedience to God the Father, in this covenant of redemption, empowered by the Spirit, lived this life that you and I were supposed to live, that Adam failed to live and give, gave to us like the bronze serpent hung up on the pole 
except he's not some statue. He was alive, hung up on the pole, so that the wrath of God could be poured upon him on behalf of sinners like us to take our sin and exchange it for his glory. He was raised up on that pole. So like the Israelites who are sure to die because of poison, we are sure to die because of sin and death can look and see the crucified son of man, the crucified God-man, fully God, fully man, in some mysterious union, hung up there to take the wrath of the Father and exchange it for his glory. John 3, all of John, all of the New Testament, all of the Old Testament, all of the scripture in full. This one who is to come to be lifted up to die so that he might conquer and save and us with him because of what he's done. Let's pray. Father, your mercy is good. Your grace is good. And we thank you for the work of our Savior who has broken in from heaven, from above, to do just the work that you have sent. And you have ordained from before time began to be good the redemption of sinners like us. So Lord, this morning, as we conclude and close, may our eyes be fixed upon that pole and upon our Savior who is risen up not just in death, but also in resurrection. For that is our hope in completion, in full. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.